We have Rob Stevenson uh, talking about expectations for the coming days and weeks ahead and lessons that will be taught and warning there will be some explicit language in this podcast. Look at Thursday, the pharmacology. So as I, got, as I had you guys looking at some of these protocols ahead of time, when we're thinking about uh, pharmacology for cardiology, some of these questions will be, uh, will be, Janice will be covering them. So when she covers pharmacology on Thursday from 8 to 10, um, that is related to this cardiac pharmacology stuff. So um, the protocols that you will have read about, um, you know, how the action of the medication works and stuff will tie into that. I say protocols here for me. That's just for me to pull out the cardiac protocols that you guys have already been studying and kind of review them with you guys and look through how the protocol looks. Um, and then Joe Bertels is going to give his talk about, um, you know, examining a patient, clinical decision-making on a patient. He does a good job of that. So that'll be fun. So, um, all right. Tomorrow, uh, we have Chris Hughes coming to do a review of image trend. And uh, then we have Todd Fisher after that. And he's gonna show a bunch of his reports. So Todd Fisher is well known for being one of the best report writers for Bellingham Fire. Um, he's detail-oriented. He writes a good report. And so I've asked him over the last month to collect reports that he's already written and to print them off. So he'll be able to circulate some of those around and then he'll be able to talk to you about them. One of, our, one of our challenges when we do class in here for Chris in the morning will be that he can pull up the online component and show it on the screen like this, uh, image trend and what it looks like, and try to show you guys how to download things. But he's already talked about, he doesn't want me to bring in a Life Pack 15, for instance, and actually download it to a report, because then he says it's hard to kind of delete it and it, he thinks he can illustrate it without having to actually have the physical life pack 15 in here. You guys will learn a lot of your stuff from your preceptors on scene. So this is, this is a way to kind of get some answers about what do we do? What's the process? When, when Chris has problems and the, the report isn't filled out correct, correctly or he's got, maybe you've got feedback from Dr. Junk and you're supposed to answer it then though, or Dr. Sullivan, then how do you manage that? How do you send it back? How do you make corrections, send it back? Those kinds of things. Hopefully Chris can answer that in the morning. And then Fisher will be answering other things related to image trend, kind of general in the seat logistics, uh, but also showing you good report writing. And then, I don't know if I can stress this enough, most of your learning is gonna happen on the rigs with your preceptor. Like all the things to do with when you write a report, how you write a report, uh, Everything to do with just daily operation, you guys will be doing that uh, on the rigs with your preceptor. Um, <clears throat> culturally speaking, you guys will be in the back seat probably for the first couple months. After that, I want to have you guys transition to being in the front right seat. I want you guys to have to run the radio. I want you guys to run the computer to say on scene, whatever, to read the computer, to get yourself ready, to have your phone out ready for protocols, to have the hand heavy ready on your phone, to be able to pull something up on a PED or any adult. You can hit, hook, hit adult sizes into hand heavy. It will give you the doses of our medications in there. So start 
Start being in that right seat at about two months, I figure, and I'll have to talk to your preceptors about that, or you guys let me know. Some might put you in there right now. Others will say, oh, it's a BLS call, get in the right seat right now, I'll, I'll get in the back. Or um, it could be that you have um, some folks that are a bit sick to their stomach if they're riding the back too much, and they will make you ride in the back all the time. And then that's a bit of a challenge for us. So if your preceptors are like that, then I want to make sure that in evals, for sure, you're in the front seat, but I'm gonna try to get them to change to letting you into that right seat well before eval. So let me know, like if your preceptor simply can't ride in the back because of being car sick or whatever, I've gotta know about it because I need you guys to know how to run the whole call, which it may not seem like a lot to push in route on scene on the computer, but there's other stuff happening up there. There's, there's looking at the uh, monitor, there's, they say we're gonna have headsets soon in our rigs. I don't know if you guys are gonna get them. And if we have headsets in our rigs, then it may be less critical for the student to be up in the front seat because you'll be able to hear the radio. Like if, for instance, you're going into the county and they're giving a radio report. You, if you're in the back, you might miss a lot of that radio report and also not be the one talking. But if you have headsets, then you can actually hit transmit and do the radio communication on your headset from the back seat. So then really all that happens is the reading of the text on the computer when it comes in from dispatch, uh, like something new comes in, you would be able to read it if you're in that front right seat. If you're in the back, you can't. So eh. I might get some pushback from some of the preceptors that typically get sick in the back seat. So let's play that by ear, but right now assume that I want you in the front right seat at about the two month mark. And if it doesn't happen, let's talk about it. We may not be able to fix it, um, I don't want someone sick in the back all the time and pissed off so that they're an asshole to you as a preceptor, but we'll, we'll try to figure it out. Did you have a question? Uh, yeah, you were talking about the hand-tubby stuff on your mm -hmm. phone. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I have my protocols on the phone. I don't have the hand-tubby submitment. Yeah. yeah. Let's get uh, it right now. I'm trouble unlocking it, the hand-tubby. Your Belling? hand has to have a code that they give you for you to have access to it. And so we do have that. You you just use Bellingham's one, so. Why don't why don't we manage that right now? Because we got time this morning. So, pull up uh, your app store or whatever you use to get apps, depending on Apple versus. Correct. It's for all ages. Yeah. Um, who do I send that to for? So let's talk about workforce safety and wellness. That is a chapter that I had. I had Kendra Cristelli coming, but she ended up having another meeting and couldn't come. And then I tried uh, a couple other people from our fire department that are running the, um, the group for, it was, I tried Rickman and I tried uh, Derek Scott that run the, what is it called? The peer support group for, yeah, for the department. And I think that's, that's countywide now, this, this effort to have peer support. So, um, we're going to review this. Look at how crummy the quality is. Um, you guys, this is this is about wellness for for you as far as um, a big part of you staying capable of doing this job is learning how to manage your own stress, learning how to how to stay healthy. And so uh, 
This is standard textbook stuff I'm gonna go through, but I'm gonna go pretty fast through it because I know you guys all know most of this. Uh, as far as establishing your target heart rate, I don't, want, I don't wanna go through all that right now with you guys. I think you all know how to, how to get out there, be physical. It doesn't have to be a, a thorough workout. It could be something more like that, that you enjoy, but it's also physical, whether it be hiking or uh, getting outdoors, like just get yourself healthy by um, thinking about working out, about good, a good diet, you know, staying, you know, nutritionally savvy. Um, <clears throat> this talks about posture. Take a deep breath, breathe in. I do believe in this, slouches ouch. So we have some new gurneys that are kind of nice, but we will frequently be in positions that you guys cannot manage your posture well. Whether you're pulling someone out from next to a toilet or off of a bed at a nursing home and you can't get to the other side of the bed and you're doing everything from one side, like all those things are never good. It's funny how years ago, I remember um, in the grocery industry, I used to work at Safeway, everyone had to have a back brace uh, if they did a certain kind of work, you know? And then I got into the fire service years later, and uh, so I was 16 when I was doing that, and then I'm like 23 when I get in the fire service, and they don't have any braces on, and they're lifting way heavier stuff and way more awkward positions, and it's, it's like some industries will mandate that you have a back brace on, but here we are in the fire service, no mandated back braces, you know? So it's kind of, I don't know, kind of funny, but um, because of that, I think uh, L&I, um, the industry out there has recognized uh, other industries, but has somehow left us alone. So take it upon yourself to realize that if any industry needs good back braces or really good positioning, good, good training on how to lift properly, it would be us. And it's great if you can say the way this guy is standing here, his posture is excellent, like this is exactly the right way to lift. Try to do that if possible, but you won't be able to do it frequently. And because of that, just be careful. I had a back injury um, years ago. It's what got me into training medics. Um, back in two, 1999, I think I was uh, lifting a person down the YW, uh, YWCA staircase out in front, the cement one. And uh, I had Dan Benkendorf next to me, and we had lifted on the gurney. Everyone was on four corners of the gurney. And so I don't think that's as safe. So we should always be lifting the gurney with four people. But my belief is it should be a person on either side and one person at each end. But because we were both holding on to a corner at the top of the gurney, where most of the weight was, someone else was already going down the stairs, and Dan stepped off kind of at an angle to the side, instead of going straight down the stairs next to me, he, the gurney was a little bit angled and he stepped down and so I was trying to hold up and he, he was letting his end drop more and I felt like I needed to correct it and I ended up uh, rupturing my L5S1 disc. And so I was, ah, God, that hurt, you know? Get down, finish that day of work, go home, have this horrible pain down my right leg and kind of building, it was kind of sore. I went to work the next shift and I was on engine two with Timmy Kays as the captain. He was a new captain at the time. 
and we went way out on Old Lake Samish Road to a car fire. It's like three in the morning, you know. And uh, we, someone had burned up a car on purpose on this person's driveway out in the middle of nowhere. And so we had to hike up a long gravel driveway with our hose and everything, put out this fire. And my back's like, motherfucker, that hurts, you know. And, and so I get back, we put our, clean up everything, put everything away, and we get a call at probably like six in the morning. And I had to physically, and I've never done this before, but I remember I was a medic at the time, and, and so I was trying to do a lot of the interview, but I ended up just having to sit in a chair in this person's house on the south side there, like nice home. And I had to sit down, and my right leg was so, like the pain was going down my right leg, I had to kind of pull it up like this. And I was just uncomfortable I was talking to this lady. So I thought, oh, maybe I better get this looked at. So later, I went in and got looked at and found out I had ruptured a disc. So then I was on light duty for a while. And while I was on light duty, I don't know if this part needs to be recorded, Greg Bass was uh, that, um, that my lifting technique was wrong and that I was trying to overcorrect for something someone next to me was doing. And so if you guys can, can make sure not to injure yourself, but also if you see something happening on scene that looks unsafe like that, point it out. Try to make sure that we preserve all of our, all of our people so that we can keep having a long career in this job because um, you know that ALS, you know, ain't lifting shit thing. That, that, that used to bug me, you know, where people would say that medics don't lift anything and why am I expected to lift everything on scene here? And, and the part I remember, especially years ago when we did all the transports, um, before we had BLS doing transports, was that what they don't see is that I'm lifting the person out of the out of the ambulance at the hospital. I'm bringing him out, holding up the end of that gurney, bringing it down, pushing him into the hospital, and then I'm lifting that person onto the hospital bed every single call, where the engine company guys might get upset that I didn't lift something on scene, but I'm lifting them again and again, you know, at the hospital that they never see. Now they do, because they do a lot of BLS now too, but um, I don't want you guys to worry about never lifting any. I don't want that to be who you are. I just want you to be safe when you do it. And uh, I don't want you to shirk work, you know. I don't want medics to be looked at as the ain't lifting shit people. I don't like that, that mentality that I think people have. Um, but you will learn from your preceptors when it's appropriate to lift and not, you know, that logistical stuff. But specific to this, to this lesson here, I want you guys to think about lifting safely all the time. And if it takes another minute to organize people, if you see someone in there that's just grabbing and trying to do everything themselves. Hey, hold on for a second, let's come up with a plan, you know, and come up with a plan that works for everyone. Um, some folks are awesome at it and you don't have to say a word. Some engine company captains will, will manage everything and do exactly what needs doing without you even thinking about it because it's already done by the time you get there or it's happening in an organized way. But if you see something that doesn't look safe, point it out. Or if you need to add yourself to it to make everyone else more safe, do that. Get yourself in there. and and lift. I think because they're showing a gurney in this photo, I'd like you guys just to think about if you are lifting four corners, four people on a gurney all the time, even a, even a 90 pound, you know, little old lady, just make it a practice every time of someone's on either side holding onto the rail on the side, someone's at, at each end and you're all lifting together and just go on three, one, two, three, you know, and just I think we all have that in our mind. We all know three is when we go, not after three, but on three. Like, just get get used to doing it a certain way every time, and you guys, just culturally speaking, will do a better job of keeping us all safe.
no one needs to go out with a back injury at a young age or even middle age, you know. I remember when I had my, my disc ruptured, the guy said, well, you're still young, you know. When you get older, you'll have less gel in your disc because you'll have shrunk, and then you won't get this injury. It won't happen to you. So I'm like, oh, okay, I've got something to look forward to getting older. So <laughs> it took, takes almost a year for the, the gel that had extruded into my nerve space there to get eaten away naturally. At the time, surgery uh, offered the same end result at six months than not doing anything, so I opted not for surgery. Now surgery's a little better. That was back in 99, I guess, so I guess they've done a better job of being able to go in and do surgery now. But So I did not have surgery, just worked through it, and luckily my dropped reflex on my right foot was dropped and stuff. I got all that stuff back, so. That clunky transition of moving a patient from Parker to a hospital bed mm -hmm. <laughs> I was I was alluding to that yesterday a little bit with the nursing stuff and and it, it frankly was one of Kenny's pet peeves and I totally was on board that we shouldn't go to the hospital and be the only ones lifting the person to the hospital bed. Um, there was a fight years ago about them providing blankets for us and the only reason we were able to keep the blankets from the hospital on our rigs was that we put a blanket under each of the patients and we use that as a lifting device and that's the only reason they bought off on keeping the laundering of blankets for the whole county with us was for that, was for that purpose. So um, when you get there, if you can just try to make sure that, that you're not lifting that patient with your partner alone, it's not safe, you shouldn't be doing it. You should have other staff members that are helping you. And if you have to hold off on your report, not a sick patient, Hold off on your report till you get enough help in there to lift over, then do that. Or if you need to give your report while you're waiting for more help to get there to move them, that's fine. But just make sure you're not just taking on the workload yourself like a young gung-ho person and wrecking your back at, you know, in your 20s or 30s when you shouldn't be because you want to be doing this a long time. And even after you're done being a medic, you'll still be lifting patients. You want to keep your back in good shape and then fighting fire, you know? What if we had to pull one of each other out of a building or something like Keep your back healthy. How popular is the patient sling, you know, the, the blue sling? It's, it's good. If you guys, um, I, for a while, there was a practice of trying to use it every single time. And then it kind of falls away, you know, because we know we have the other blanket underneath. Um, I would say the most important time to use that is if you know before you go in, that a person's big and heavy, then bring it in. Um, with our gurney swapping situation now, a lot of times the BLS crews will already have <clears throat> a gurney in there on scene, may have already moved the person over, at which time it's too late, right? Um, so I would say though that if you feel like this is someone that's gonna need to go into one of those rooms with a lift because they're big, then you want it underneath of them already and then you can just make this whole, you can bring that lift over, hook it all up, do everything without anyone hurting their back. So that's the ideal scenario. So I don't, it doesn't frequently come out on dispatch, the information about someone being big. Some of our medics put that device under, what's the new gurney like? I don't know, but. Yeah. So then it's just always available. You could be in there and say, oh, here, this person's big, I'm gonna use it this time. But if someone's already loaded them onto their gurney, and you have the new fancy gurney, then you're gonna to have to move them anyway. In which case, you might as well have it sitting under there, ready to put onto yours. 
because then you still have to move them. So, But that is a great device. And the hospital has pretty much allowed us to take as many as we want. So if you guys um, don't have one on your rig, you know where to get them. That little cupboard area kind of in front of bed 19 or whatever, 18, 19, yeah, somewhere over there. Get Grab one from there. Um, <clears throat> common infectious diseases. Um, the idea of putting on a mask um, is, is something we don't frequently do, uh, and gowns. But we should be wearing eye protection all the time. It's supposed to be a rule. It is a rule. At Bellingham right now, I always forget. I'm terrible at it. Um, but you're supposed to wear eye protection all the time. So make that a, your gloves and your eye protection will be on at all times. Just have that a norm. And then if there's any reason, uh, cough, vomiting, something like that, you should have a mask available uh, in your kit, which we do, <clears throat> and or on your person. I don't know if any of you guys want fanny packs. It was a rule for a while at Bellingham, but guys were getting caught going through doors, you know, and frequently getting snagged with those, so they decided to stop requiring them. But in that fanny pack, everyone would have like a hand disinfectant, and they would have a gown, and they would have a mask, maybe even their goggles, you know. So it was kind of cool to have that, but uh, I hated mine. I frequently would be lifting someone out through a door and get snagged on something like, ah, and it just made me so mad all the time. So still wears his. Does he? Yeah. With yeah. the antenna, his <laughs> he doesn't lift them out through an opening of a, of a mobile home or something, get snagged down. Um, so it, I, I want you guys to think if you're ever going to um, a severe cough, coughing up blood, or if you know going into it that this is a MRSA patient or this is someone that has tuberculosis, TB, then you will mask up automatically and you should put on a gown. They, when you go into the hospital, one of the great indicators for me has always been that if when we walk in, they're all masked up and gowned up because of the story you told them, then you probably should have been doing it yourself. <laughs> and another rule of thumb is that if you guys get on scene and you realize something, like, oh, this person has active MRSA, don't be afraid to back out of that room and put on proper protection. It's hard to do sometimes. You might be feeling committed. You're already there. I've already been in, you know, uh, touched by the infection or something. It's no use doing it now. That's not true. You have to be in a room for a certain period of time for TB to really be a problem. You know, there's, there's a bunch of these, these, um, these kind of timeline things that define when you actually could get an exposure. And they, they doesn't mean that you were exposed in the first few minutes of seeing someone. You should back out put on gowns once you realize that, that you have someone that has an infection that you need to be uh, protecting yourself from. So, And you'll be a good medic for having protected everyone else by doing that. Say, oh, this person has TB. Everyone, I want you to back out and put on a face mask. This one has MRSA. We're going to back out, put a face mask on, and a gown. This one has, um, <clears throat> what's the GI one that everyone talks about right now? C. diff. C. diff, we're going to back out, we're going to put a mask on and a gown. You guys aren't going to really probably get sick from C. diff because you're healthy, but you're going to keep your clothes cleaner by having put on a gown for the next call you go on 
you know, for other patients that you're going to see. So all this isn't necessarily about your healthy immune system being able to bat battle it, but you keeping yourself clean because we go see a bunch of old other people that are immune compromised that could potentially get something from you. So it's hard. I've done it a number of times where I thought, ah, I should have backed out of that room, made everyone gown up, and I didn't. And I felt bad about it afterwards. So if you think it, mention it. You guys will be students for a while. Bounce that off your preceptor and say, hey, we've just heard this person has C. diff. What do you think about backing out and putting on gowns right now? And see what your partner says, but hopefully they'll, they'll affirm, yeah, let's do that. Um, you guys all know about finger sticks and everything. We've got standardized forms you will fill out. If you think you have an exposure, someone coughs blood into your face, whatever it is, you will fill out a, an exposure packet and you will call EMS-1 or your officer, um, probably Ben. Is he your infection, infection control officer? No, I think it's just whoever's. Iverson is. Iverson, okay. So get a hold of whoever you need to and then, and then get, get stuff filled out. Yeah, okay. Um, measles, possible measles. Good Lord. The measles are crazy. Have you heard like you could be in an airport two hours after someone that came through there already and you are exposed. Really? Like it is like, it's so different than any other um, like rate tuberculosis, you know, you got to be in a room eight hours in a confined space with someone before it's considered a potential exposure. But the measles, like someone could have walked through an airport and a couple hours later you walk through, you are, are going to be uh, exposed as well. <laughs> like that is one strong germ or something. So measles is a bad one. So if you think you've been exposed to measles, you guys have been vaccinated, but your ability to potentially expose other people or if that person was in your rig, other people can now be exposed inside your rig. That's a big deal. We need to make sure that we clean up everything really thoroughly. I hope that gets fixed. I know there's a big push right now. The school district in June had voted in that, that now people have to get vaccinated. You can't just sign a waiver saying, I don't want to. You have to show vaccination records to be in a public school now. I think Seattle's doing it too. Yeah. Seattle's doing it too. I heard our school district did it, it, voted it in in June or July of this year. So. Yeah, it's a big deal though. Like, I can't remember, did you guys hear like 5,000 people died in Europe or England alone or somewhere over there from measles? Like, what the heck? This is something that should have been eradicated, should have been gone, like, anyway. Uh, let's see, oh, so it is defining these here as far as German measles, airborne droplets. Incubation period. Um, Whooping cough, pertussis, that, that is uh, something that kids are, are definitely getting currently. So uh, any of these things, you guys should be thinking about masking up for any airborne droplet ones. When it says incubation period, that's just after you're exposed, that's how long it takes for you to start to, That's what I understand, yeah, until you start feeling like, oh, my God, I am sick, you know. Um, hepatitis B or C, you know, weeks or months, that's... Obviously bad news, hepatitis, hepatitis A was making a little bit of a comeback recently, I understand. So um, yeah, that's the oral fecal route. I heard that there's now a cure for hepatitis C. Yeah, so it's super strong antibiotics and it does take a little uh, toll on your liver usually. So they have to treat someone who doesn't already have a significantly damaged liver from the hepatitis, 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's apparently they can knock it out now, which is crazy. Yeah. Liver. Um, let's talk about the removal of your gloves. I hope you guys already know this, but uh, there, um, there is one of our old firefighters who's, whose wife got, she's a dental hygienist, and she got a form of herpes on her nail beds from a patient cold sore type stuff while she was working on them, didn't know it was there. But her practice of taking off gloves was to, to grab her glove like this, and this thumb that may have been exposed would frequently touch her hand as she removed her glove, and she figures that's how it happened, how she ended up getting exposure. So uh, when you take off your gloves, every single time, just do it you know, properly every time. You won't have a problem, but grab the center of your glove and peel it off and then grab the other one from inside and peel it over that one and you'll be saving yourself from these weird potential exposures. She had a problem with this cuticle area, weird red infection stuff that was a form of herpes, you know, so who wants that, right? I mean, take your gloves off properly each time. So here's the, here's the other method for the, second, for the second glove there. I don't know, do you guys feel pretty good about your glove removal? I mean, I think, I think we get so used to doing it, we don't even think about it, but do think about it a little bit. Make sure you're feeling like, hey, I'm not potentially exposing myself here. Um, uh, the need for uh, face mask, eye shield, and face mask, um, any, any kind of blood exposure, anyone who's coughing, anyone's vomiting, um, any feces on scene. You guys have all been to calls where you are picking up someone that has been in their own feces for some period of time. Put on protection for that. Like, why not get your eyes protected and your mouth protected from the potential particulate that might be floating about as you rustle this patient into a blanket? <clears throat> it's awful to think of, but it is true. Like, ugh. <laughs> okay, mask protection, eyewear, that's the other model, just showing you wearing your goggles, which <clears throat> there are both kinds of masks for us. So you can wear the kind with the, with the shield up here for your eyes, but I think if we get used to wearing our goggles all the time, then we'll be wearing this kind of mask most of the time without the eye protection part on it. Make sure your rig has those on it. You know you guys do morning checks? Make sure your rig's ready. You don't want to have like, oh my God, I only had two eye protection things. I needed three that day because I'm the third on the rig and it isn't in the kit. You know, like make sure your rigs are stocked properly with the stuff you need. Um, let's see, the HEPA respirator. So it, what do we have right now? We have, so you guys, I don't know what Ferndale has, but I do know that we have um, a set of masks for us underneath the, like, actually I'd, I'm thinking of my old rigs right now. Where is the current little plastic container that has the canisters? Driver's side bench seat, okay. So know where those are, right? So if you have legitimate HEPA uh, mask on, then you, can, then you can be in the back with someone that has um, tuberculosis or someone that has um, the measles or something like, something big like that. You need better filtration than just a dust mask. So um, I would say that if you had to 
If you had to say when you change over to that kind of mask, it's going to be for uh, not your regular uh, little diseases that have big bacteria like MRSA or something. It's going to be for your, your uh, viral stuff or your smaller bacterial stuff. So I would say um, because measles is so effective, you should have it on for measles. You should have it on for tuberculosis. So they're both, they're both bacteria, though. Yeah, I think, what is yours on your rigs? Do you have? We don't have the cancer, we have N100. Then, you're, then you're, you have what she shows here in basically, right? Yeah, and as long as you guys were able to pass the fit test with those, then those are adequate. We just had the, the cartridge ones because so many people were failing their test on this kind that we decided just to have the cartridge ones. If we go from a dust mask, the next one up is the, is the cartridge, yeah. <laughs> we do it on the cartridge yeah. one though. Yeah. yeah, and we years ago we had been trying to do it on the other one. Yeah, and people just failed. It was failing all the time, so it's like forget it. We can't do a proper job there. Um, they're showing you know scrubbing down for surgery here. Uh, we don't have the facilities for this, but I do feel like everyone should be washing your hands after every single call you go on. Uh, hopefully at the hospital when you take off your gloves, you'll be able to, to scrub up there and, and get your hands clean. That is number one, hot soapy water will keep you from getting, it's in all the damn quizzes, right? All of our EMT quizzes, like what's the best way to prevent infectious disease? Uh, yeah, actually just... The nurses freak out if they see you Oh, I know. <laughs> Are they like, oh, that's carcinogenic. I've definitely been over there, well, you know, wiping my hands off before I wipe my gurney down with those. And like, what are you doing? Like, well, your hands are going to crack. They're going to, like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Someone, someone mentioned that, like, it's really bad for your liver. Like, somehow it gets absorbed and whatever it is, like, goes to your liver and, like, destroys your liver. Yeah, it could. It could. So I think that, I mean, really, we should just use hot soapy water, right? Uh, Ebola. Now, the <laughs> Ebola stuff, thank God, has fallen out of a big kind of concern for us. But do you guys remember your rigs that were getting prepped? We had one that would have plastic inside of it. In and, the van. Yeah, like Ebola uh, is bad news. So God forbid we get a scare like that. But you guys are going to be notified. Like if there's an Ebola scare in our community, you guys will be made aware of it. And we'll flag the address that that person's at. I know they could be not home when they call 911 at any location, but we should all know that there's a potential Ebola ahead of time and there's a special response for that which should include the EMS supervisor going and figuring out things before we ever make entry or do anything inside a home like that. So be aware, that's a big one, Ebola, don't make entry. It's kind of like a hazmat situation at that point. We do not want to expose ourselves or anyone else, our rig, you know, so. It says, patient has a fever with vomiting, diarrhea, blood uh, in their stool, is sweating, uh, salivating, or otherwise producing blood or, and bloody fluids, which emergency responders could be exposed to. So um, the, the history for us used to be, oh, my God, they've traveled recently to a foreign country, like maybe it was Africa where the big exposure was or the big 
problem was. And so if, um, if there's a situation like that from dispatch, we know that someone recently traveled abroad and now they're at home with a severe fever, um, you guys should be thinking about calling EMS-1, verifying what they think, and letting EMS-1 do some quick research on how we're going to approach that scene. But um, traveling abroad with a fever um, and, then, and then this possibility of some weird infection, we should be thinking about it and bringing EMS-1 into the mix. We don't have, when we've got gowns and all that, if we had a high suspicion of Ebola, suspicion for Ebola yeah. would we be thinking more Tyvek suit? Yes. Kind of? It's supposed to be SCBA, Tyvek suit. It's supposed to be all taped up. Like, it's a big deal. Yeah. And, and, and they don't want that person at the hospital either. So if you guys are concerned, like, oh, my God, I'm taking too much time. This person's sick inside their home. You can't go to the hospital with this person anyway. They have a huge amount of prep time. They're not going to expose the rest of the population in the hospital to this person either. Sometimes the plan has been talked about where we need to ultimately leave them in their own house and set up some way. If they're not in an apartment complex with a bunch of other people, they would try to prob probably leave them in their own house and come up with some entry corridor uh, with positive pressure and a bunch of precautions and treat them there and keep the rest of the population safe. So. It's tricky. It's, this Ebola thing is a big deal. Like, you guys would have to be in Tyvek suits. It, it'd take hours to treat So it would be like a county yeah. response? Yeah. Yep. So get EMS-1 involved. They'll trigger everything else. <coughs> Start finding out how to get that all managed. God forbid we get that in our community. I, I just remember how big a deal it was to just try plan for it without even having someone here that had it. So, so it seems likely to me that this out over time as you're performing your patient exam. Then inside the house, yeah. you're like, oh, temperature is above so everything is laid out, but it's years old now, and I haven't looked at it for years, so I would have to pull it all up. So we would be asking for um, the county uh, health department to weigh in on this right away. And if you were exposed and you're now in that environment and you realize, oh my God, in my interview, this person says they've just been to Africa. They've, um, they have this fever, you know, and there was some Ebola cases in Africa, by the way. Um, oh no, you're probably stuck in there, backing out, putting on all your stuff that you have available, and then making a phone call, and you may not be going back in based on EMS-1 saying, nope, do not go back in, do not make entry again. Keep everyone out for a minute, say, I'm so sorry, but we have to leave you in your home for a minute while we go figure out what to do. And uh, Would we get the start off involved <coughs> in that as well? I believe so. I believe that, yeah, but try to get... Yeah, because they're going to want to know that they need to start setting up potentially at the hospital. So, but obviously that's a few steps down the road. Yeah, so EMS one or our on duty battalion or whoever would be right. the first. And step if you had been in there without proper PPE on, which would be the case, like you're describing, then you have to back out, and you're going to then have to go get deconned and everything. So you probably are done with that patient at that and point. Probably quarantined. Yeah. And you're probably quarantined. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
you're fucked. You don't get to see your family, you know. <clears throat> the risks of being a medic, huh? Uh, we all know how to take care of our waste. I do believe that you guys, we've been talking about it for years of having an additional garbage can on our rig because because we put apple cores in, you know, we put in our water bottles and everything into the regular biohazard garbage and the hospital has to burn all of that. They do it for us, thank God. But um, the, the idea of having an additional garbage can on a rig has just not really panned out. So be responsible with your garbage. Try not to fill it up with a bunch of regular lunch items or you know, things that have nothing to do with hazmat. Matter of fact, I remember going to the hospital years ago and they were complaining about this, the heavy use of their red bio bags and they had had people go through our bags and see just how much wasn't <clears throat> biohazard. Matter of fact, all of it. So by their standard, the only thing that needs to be burned or incinerated is something that actually has blood soaked into it. If you have <clears throat> a Band-Aid that has just got a little bit of blood on it or any other materials, four by fours that have a little bit of blood on them, they're not even considered a legitimate biohazard. That can go in regular garbage. They only need stuff that's soaked with blood for them. And they do have separate garbages all over the place for, for not biohazard. And, and so they, they were kind of complaining and they, the hospital pushes on things every once in a while. This was one of them. So if you guys are on the rig, please try to be aware of that. Like if you have a water bottle or something, just take it to the regular garbage in in station one or your station, you know, instead of putting it into that biohazard bag, because we have big fat stacks of bags sometimes in that one room there, the decon room, and, and they're mostly just regular garbage, you know. Oh, there's a McDonald's bag in there, there's a bunch of, you know, cans of aluminum cans that could be recycled, you know, they're all in there. Let's burn them up. So um, use <clears throat> BBMs and tubing and OPAs. And all that go in there, yeah. Goes in I would put it in biohazard. For us, that's what we. Yeah, but. Correct. The hospital would not put that in a biohazard bag. <clears throat> they would put that in regular garbage. Mm -hmm. Gloves that have no blood on them, they go in regular garbage too. Packaging. Yeah. All of our stuff goes in there like it's contaminated or something. <clears throat> Sharps. Um, this will be a big thing with. Um, as we go through and we test on our skills checkoff sheets, you know, we will definitely be looking at sharps a lot and being very careful about them, very deliberate about where we put them. Um, I poked Tony McGuinn in the chest one time with a sharp um, <laughs> with this, this lady that probably was suspect, you know. She, she was a drug addict lady um, out off of Orca, I think, um, Sandy Point area, somewhere over there. I can't remember exactly where it was. but. I handed a, a sharp to Tony, and right when I was handing it to him, her knee, from sitting on the gurney, she was kind of thrashing about her knee, hit me, and he was sitting on the captain chair behind, you know, up above her head, and her knee smacked my elbow, and I poked Tony right in the chest. So we used to have needles that didn't sheath themselves, right? They're just a long, I swear to God, it was a long old needle that would hang out every time we did, and it would be dripping with blood at the end and a big chamber full of blood, you know, we were just handing this off to someone to then manage. And uh, anyway, so I've always felt bad about that. Um, so be really deliberate about your sharps use, and then if you can do it yourself, it's better than having someone else do it. Guys used to stab the seat on the medic unit 
with the sharp and leave it there so it was protected from everyone else, you know, until they could take care of it later. And I remember the old seats when I came on the job would have a bunch of pin cushion stab marks at where next to where the medic would sit and stick the needle in, you know. <laughs> I don't know what we were doing back then, but <laughs> so, um, but the most responsible thing to do is to actually manage that sharp yourself, but you probably won't be able to, so just be very clear about where your sharp is. When you guys start your IV and you need to set this sharp down, say, I'm setting my sharp right here so people know about it. And then you have to be responsible to make sure that sharp finds its way into the container before you're done with that call. Like, you can't leave it on someone's lap on a, on a terry towel or something. You can't, you can't just leave that sharp sitting somewhere. You have to make sure, as a practitioner, that you're responsible to have that sharp go all the way into a sharps container. And again, if you can, put it there yourself. Don't hand it off, put it there yourself, if, if possible. A lot of times, are we doing it still where we're taking a drop of blood off the sharp by pushing a pan at the... It, it depends, some of them, like for a while we ordered some that wouldn't allow us to do yeah, that. You can't even get so it depends on, on there. Yeah, it depends on the sharp. I can't remember the last time I did that. But we do that. that yeah, so when we, there's been some criticism of that, that that could offer a chance to possibly push the sharp back out again as you're putting your pen on that little cotton end and trying to get a drop for the decks. Um, so we've been told not to do it anymore. So you guys, this new generation, if you guys can kind of push that agenda, you wipe someone's skin with the alcohol wipe and then you dry it off first with a terry towel then you poke. If you leave alcohol on the skin, when you poke it and you try to push that drop out, it just spreads across that alcohol. It doesn't make a nice clean drop. So it's, it'll spread across the fingerprints of the finger and everything that blood will if you leave some alcohol on there. So alcohol wipe, wipe it off with a dry terry towel, then do your poke and get a real drop of blood from the finger. That is the way that we're supposed to do it. I had a diabetic years ago, friend of mine, his son called me over, my dad's low on sugar, and I was off the job, I go over there, and he's, he's lucid enough to be taking his own blood sugar to prove to me that his sugar was okay, and he would just poke his finger, because all these diabetics, they just poke their finger, they don't wipe it first, and he had had orange juice, and I think some of the orange juice was on his fingers a little bit, because his sugar came back at 92, I'm like, you should not be acting like this with a sugar of 92. So I took uh, his own kit and I found an alcohol wipe in there and I wiped it off, dried it, and his sugar was uh, 31 or something. So do wipe the finger first to be professional and make sure there's no sugar on their finger. Then dry it and then do your poke and do not take it from the sharp anymore. Some people may argue that, that that's what they want to do because it's easier, but um, according to the people that that sell the machine, uh, you're supposed to do it from a capillary bed, not from a vein, and that the capillary bed at your fingertips is the right way to get your blood sugar. So we should be doing it from there. So try to, try to start as a new generation here of changing to getting a, another stick. I know it's another invasive procedure. It's kind of a bummer to poke someone again, but that's the way that we should get an accurate reading and we should be doing it without exposing ourselves to a sharp. Yeah. I've never dried it with a cherry cloth. I let it air dry. That's, that's fine too. If it air dries, that's fine. But I like to speed things up sometimes. You know, you're just thinking about going fast. Yeah. You could you could do that, or four by four, something just to dry it off. I've even done it on the blanket because <laughs> I know everyone's poking their finger with 
with, uh, so I got a new white blanket sitting over the top of them. I just like will wipe it on their finger real quick, but um, you should probably do a terry towel or something. It's not sterile though, just like the blanket isn't, but, um, but style-wise, especially as a new person doing it, and theoretically, I think a terry towel would be cleaner than the blanket, so you should probably do that. All right. Let's take a break. Sorry I didn't take one earlier. We're at an hour. We have a very set um, exposure packet situation, uh, exposure um, uh, paperwork to fill out, a process that we go through. Um, does Ferndale use care? Um, for exposures? Yeah. Like, who's your... Nobody really knows. Like, okay. We, you say that... I was, I was going to ask. We as in like the county, or we as in BFD? No, BFD right now. Okay, and yeah, we don't. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, when we had our exposure, it was just kind of really nonchalant. Mm -hmm. Like, we, talking to Christopher, he was saying that when he worked at Bellingham, you guys had a very structured exposure policy. And it's gotten even more structured recently. So yeah, we went through the issue of, I think if I could pull it up. Like we, we were the ones making the push for us to go get our blood draws and all that stuff and not yeah. the administration. So it was a little, a little okay. kind of weird. And okay. Like nobody had really done it before. Mm -hmm. It so doesn't, essential, it? it doesn't, yeah, it is. So I should be able to find it right now. But uh, just to define it, the easiest thing to know as a medic is that you call EMS one and they have the packet. You have one in your rig too. You guys can look at the ones on, on the medic units. There'll be an exposure packet, which is in a red folder in the, in the medic units in one of those many locations. Do you guys have an exposure packet on your rig too? You probably do. Probably somewhere. Yeah, it's probably well, on there really somewhere. Yeah. And it is your, it is your um, blueprint for what to do when you have an exposure. But just so county-wide, you guys should be able to call EMS-1 anytime you want to, okay? And I know that... When Ben has been busy and he doesn't respond to calls, I still love to go out there with you guys and respond, work codes, whatever. But uh, think of us as being available to you when your bosses aren't available potentially. So we will have an exposure control packet that gives us a blueprint that we can hand over to you guys to show you what our process would be. And then you would be able to confirm if you can go do that too. But I would think that you could. Yeah, um, I, I know we use care for yeah, so all then, of our medical stuff, but yep. for this we just went to Quest and got our blood draws. Okay. Um, and then just kind of sat around and waited. Okay. So our process is to just get EMS-1 involved and to get the packet out and to start looking through the packet. And then from there, we have people to call at Care Medical. And then, um, and then if, you, if that person that's on call 24-7 doesn't respond right away, then there's some uh, you know, cleaning procedures that are listed in the packet about you know, cleaning your hands, getting yourself at least clean from that incident, potentially all your clothing off to get that laundered, get yourself up for a shower, get new clothing on. There's things listed in that packet, but um, someone should call back. And they usually, lately they have been. Lately we've been getting a better response from Care Medical. They will call back. They'll ask about the exposure. They'll ask the nature of the exposure. They'll be the ones that help us um, contact and talk to the hospital about getting blood from the person that we may have been exposed from and uh, getting permission from them and everything. So uh, that process will be managed with a, with a nice blueprint that's laid out that EMS-1 will be doing. 
That's their job. From there until that is all ironed out, they will be communicating with you who is exposed and they will be making sure that you've done everything you need to and that they're doing everything outlined in that packet to confirm that you guys are okay. And honestly, most of the time people are concerned about an exposure. Um, after we talk to the infection control people or even even more vague every time or more unconcerned would be your ER doctors. You talk to them, hey, I just had this patient, you know, we're concerned about this tuberculosis or we're concerned about something, ah, don't worry about it, you know, yeah. ah, that's no big deal. And, uh, and then, so don't necessarily take what the ER doctor says as, as being done with things. If you feel like you were exposed, then you do want to contact EMS-1, pull out that packet, start looking at the things you should do right away, and we'll make phone calls and we'll figure out what we should actually do is this something that you guys go out of service for, for this yes. process? Yes, yes. Um, sometimes not, based on the initial phone call back saying, oh, you guys are fine, just wash your hands, you're good. Or they may say, yeah, you should be out of service. Okay. Mm -hmm. So your rate can get decon. Yes. And all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I just like to say, okay, you don't have to know everything about it, just know that there's a process and start that process. I've seen it at the hospital and, like, with their, like, I don't know, like cleaning a room, sometimes they have all those lights in there that are... Oh, neat. neat. That's the um, uh, ultraviolet light stuff, which we have on our rigs, but we've never used. Do you do that to um, your rigs to clean them? No. Yeah, no, we've oh. never started it yet, so... Oh, okay. I didn't know if that was like a thing or like... Yeah, it's... They said that the person had to see it, that's why they had to do that uh -huh. in the room or something. Yeah, so that's... that's uh, so just like being out in sunlight, you know, any germs will die pretty quick out in the sunlight. Uh, I think that we had good intentions when we bought that system, but it has to be run. Ours was to be done in case of any potential exposure, we'd do it. And then, um, and then it was to be done every morning at a certain time in the morning it was going to be done. The thing is, everything has to be covered up so that your eyes can't be exposed from outside the rig when it's happening. So it's and, windows? Yeah, and so there was this procedural stuff that we never quite figured out. And now I think our new rigs don't even have it because it was too big of a deal to try to... Well, the ones we're, the ones we're I don't think the brand new ones even have it because we've never figured out how to use it. Yeah. Um, it's like a very expensive system. There's no legal obligation for a patient to submit it to a um, blood draw. I don't believe so. I believe they have the right to say no. But in some cases, they may be able to be forced, and I honestly can't remember what those cases are. But. Yeah. I think they're pretty good at getting around yeah, most the reality of them not having to. That's right. Most of the time, the doctors are able to finesse, or the nurses are able to finesse them into allowing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say if someone, I would like you guys to think about, um, you know, stress levels as, as it related to, uh, children dying, um, and, and caring for yourself. If you guys have a call that includes the death of a child, uh, infant or a child or something that you guys definitely be up to or ready to go to some sort of debriefing or ready to go speak to someone that don't be so proud that you're like, ah, I'm fine. You know, um, I remember going to a few different debriefings 
and I'm not sure how it's all going to be structured right now. We have our we have our uh, peer support group that's trying to be kind of implemented countywide. That I believe we do have a doctor that will come up and sit and kind of moderate things. And there are peer support people that you can call. Um, if you are asked to come to a debriefing that will include, say, dispatch, it'll include the other EMT responders that were on, on scene, then do it. Go to it. Don't feel like, um, like, don't feel like it's just about you. So if you were to go to a debriefing, for instance, and you could offer things that happened on scene or things that you saw on scene, and the dispatcher that's there saw nothing, and now they realize that, oh, that patient was far beyond help when you guys got there based on what you said. It may alleviate some pain that they're feeling about thinking this person was viable and for whatever reason they feel like the part that they played in that call wasn't good enough, whether the instructions for CPR to the adult wasn't going well or whether they feel like the dispatch took longer than they wanted. I don't know what. All of us can feel inadequacies after a call. You may be helping EMTs or, or dispatchers or someone else with the things that you have to talk about on scene. So it doesn't have to be you're there to help you. It could be that you're there to help everyone else that is involved in it. And, and um, I would say too that the few debriefings that I've been at, there has been information that have come out from people that were there before me, EMTs that were there before me, from dispatchers, and uh, then later Sometimes they have follow-up information about the patient uh, from uh, the doctor, whoever's there, kind of helping talk about it. Um, and those things can end up being kind of helpful to round out the whole call for what's going on. Sometimes there's other information about what the family life was like before the child who got abused and killed was, you know, like other things that help just kind of frame the, the whole thing for you too. So don't, don't think that I don't want to go because I don't need it. Think about other people that may need you to be there to help them. And it may end up helping you even if you don't think it will, you know, just communicating and talking about things. I think um, there, was some, there was some talk for the last, like, I don't know, like seven or eight years ago that all this debriefing stuff that we were doing was probably just wasn't doing any good, probably wasn't actually helping people. And the best thing to help people was their peers, be able to communicate afterwards about a call with their medic partner with other people that have uh, experiences with that that are medics you know or firefighters and that that was probably the most beneficial thing to do and that this this formal debriefing with a bunch of people in a room wasn't necessarily helpful but they're saying that <clears throat> they figured out some methods they've changed things a little bit and the professionals that do this uh, would like to have small groups and, and do a formal debriefing where they have, the, um, they have the knowledge and the ability to answer questions or to ask questions in a way that, that is supposed to be therapeutic. So if you're asked, please go, I think. So in your experience, who, would, who has run those? The last one I went to is some doctor I didn't even know from down south. So someone from Seattle or Everett, I think, that came up and was was the lead debriefer, and then Kendra Cristelli was there because she does all the, the, um, the stuff for uh, our support officer group, right? And she's had a lot of training, so she was there as well. Uh, she ended up talking a lot. It was more this doctor that was kind of talking, and then and it's funny, like, um, what the hell? I don't even remember what the call was. <laughs> um, but I went, 
because I was EMS one, and there was um, there was some death or something, and and uh, I feel like I did probably have a few things to say that may have helped the, maybe the dispatchers more than anything. But um. I was part of a debriefing this summer uh, for a young woman that was murdered in Fairhaven, and so Bellingham PD uh, hired like a psychologist, psychiatrist, or whatever, some kind of doctor, and uh, it was just sponsored through the police department. So I don't know, I'm sure, you know, PD's not involved, but I don't know, it'd probably be similar, like, yeah, a psychologist yeah. or some kind of doctor. Yeah. So um, Derek Scott is currently our peer support person right now. Um, and Rick Minnick kind of started that a while ago. I think he's still involved with it too. Uh, there, is, there is the Pat Ellis person from down in Kent that has come up and done a couple talks for us at our CEs. Um, he's pretty awesome. He knows all the contacts too. So, uh, if for instance, there was an incident and, uh, you know, we let, um, Derek Scott know about it, then he would help put things together and try to just organize, Hey, what should we do about this? Should we call in a professional or should we just have a, a debriefing over the phone, uh, with, with one of our peer support people? Like it could be that Derek gives you a call and says, Hey, what do you think about talking to one of your peers, you know? And, and I'm on the peer support list. Uh, other people are too uh, at the Belling. You guys, okay. Um, I haven't had anyone talk to me yet. Maybe because I'm a supervisor, they don't want to talk to me. I don't know. But um, you know how guys are. Like a lot of them just don't want to talk about stuff anyway. So we're there, available. I do feel like um, some of the research had shown that the peer support was probably as effective as a big formal meeting. But... Um, but I would like you guys to give a big formal meeting a chance too. If you're asked or invited to come to it, I'd like you to be there. But otherwise, being able to just call up someone that you trust, that you feel like, hey, this person has likely seen what I've, what I've seen, and I just want to run some stuff by them, or I want to let them know, hey, I'm kind of struggling with this. There is um, employee assistance program too, you know, as far as getting real um, mental health services, that's available through the fire department, through you guys, as, a, as employees, you guys have that available to you. Rickman has this person right now, and Derek Scott, this psychiatrist or psychologist. I'm not sure, and I don't know her name. Do you know her name? Like, there is someone that he feels really good about sending us to right now, and that, and that she will make time available. Like, it's not, oh, I can see you in a month and a half. You know, like, this is someone that if we go to a SIDS or some other random call, you know, that we would then be able to call and get a reasonably fast appointment with this person. And that in addition to her not only seeing you, her understanding of the fire service and what we do is better than your random mental health professional that you would potentially call from the employee assistance book and then just land on someone a month from now. And, you know, so this is someone that would be a great place to start. So that is available. Kendra has that too. Kendra has all that information too? Well, she has it. Like, you call Kendra, you say you need to see somebody, mm -hmm. and she's got a person too. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. So um, that leads into the, the support officer thing, um, which is part of this conversation today. So as you guys think about calling the support officer for different different situations, it's it's not for you at that point. It's for the family, right? And uh, And... I would like you guys to 
offer information to that support officer so that they can help manage the, the, um, the family. So if you could meet the support officer, you've left someone dead on scene, you've called support, you're waiting for them to arrive, they usually get there a little bit after everything's kind of done and you're cleaning up, um, that you step outside with that support officer, maybe you do it with your preceptor at first for a little while, but that you step outside and you tell them the situation. I remember the last one I really was glad they were there was the, the, the girl that had hung herself with like a, like nothing more than just a little stretchy jump rope thing, you know, those kids used to have those jump ropes that were kind of stretchy and she's I think 13 years old and had put it over the handle of the door on the outside of her room, over the top of the door and had hung herself. You were there on that call? So I was so glad when they showed up on that one because I was already talking to the stepdad and the mom or the dad and the stepmom. I can't remember how that all dynamic was working there, but it was a sad situation to tell the parents. And so I had talked to the parents and told them that, that we had done everything we could, that their daughter was dead, you know. And, and, uh, and, then, and then support got there, so I step outside. And this is how I typically have done it over the years, is make sure that they have a, a sense of what's going on and they also know who's who in the room, like who is the contact person. So I was able to walk them in and say, this is the, this, the mom and the stepdad here and kind of make an introduction so that they can start talking. And then I would tell them, this is a, a local chaplain, we call him a support officer. They're, they're here to help you with everything you need to, to do as, as far as making phone calls to, to family, uh, making arrangements for a funeral, all those things will, will be helped and managed by the support officer person. So um, it's a long game. It's not a fast thing. These, these support officers are there because they love to help people. They're not getting paid anything, you know. So they'll, they'll be there sitting potentially for hours with a family that's grieving and helping to make phone calls to other family members and helping to um, look through the logistics of what to do at this point. The officers are here, the body, the, the coroner is going to take jurisdiction, which means that there will be um, the coroner or uh, affiliate will come pick up the body, take it to Dr. Goldfogel's office, like pick up your daughter or whatever. Like all that stuff, they have to be, they've been taught to be sensitive to all that. They've been taught to manage that so that you guys don't have to do too much. But I would say that you guys are going to be the ones making an announcement to the family member that, that you've done what you could and that unfortunately their family member has died. They're really careful about that language that, that, that they tell us anyway, to be careful about the language we use, you know, like don't say we lost your so-and-so, like you have to actually say the hard word that, that someone has died. And then I only say it once. Every, every word I say after that is they passed away or, um, you know, like something different, but I, because I have a, such a hard time saying the word died, you know. But I know that when you first make the announcement, you got to be very clear about, about it so that they can't be confused about what you're trying to say to them. So yeah, that's pretty crappy. I remember Jay Comfort has a song and it has in it um, something about telling, your, telling someone their brother's dead. Like, <clears throat> have you guys ever heard Jay Comfort's music? He has full-on albums. Like this guy has done legitimate singing. He's really? been at the really? Buffalo, the Wild Buffalo. Like, he, and before he gave up, yeah, yeah. So before he gave, uh, I 
He did it a lot when he did it a little bit more Yeah, yeah. So one of his songs, it really hits me because I know what he's talking about, you know. And it's kind of cryptic because you don't know he's talking as a medic when he's singing the song. He doesn't say medic or anything, but it is, uh, it is him. And it's kind of like he, he talks about the fact it's one of those decision points where he decided not to be a medic anymore. But um, anyway, so when you are doing this job, there will be this, this baggage that you carry based on having to tell people horrible things. And, and uh, just be sure that whenever you do... You know you have support from the support officers, which is great. Uh, know that you have to be clear about your explanation. And then I've always been sensitive to letting someone know that we did CPR for more than 30 minutes, you know, that we, that we gave medications, that we were breathing for your loved one, you know, that we did, that, that we did everything that we can do to get their heart started again and that their heart just would not start that they were, you know. So um, that is very heartful. That is from you, you know. That is gonna be hard. It's gonna be something that you may develop over time. Um, you may find that you're better off keeping it really short, depending on the, the effect of the loved one that you're trying to talk to. And the other times you need to give more explanation, but I always ask, do you have questions for me? We have to start cleaning up get our rig back in service. I'd like to be able to answer questions that you might have about the situation before I have to go put my rig together. Something like that, you know, that you're, that you're offering them the ability to ask you a question, you know, before you go. And then, and then you would say, I've, I've asked for support to be here. You can turn them away if you want. They don't have to be here if you don't want them to be, but they are gonna show up and they're gonna try to offer you help with everything that you may need to do now, whether you need to call family, whether you need to set up uh, funeral arrangements, all those things like, so that you kind of you kind of prep them to be ready to, to understand that someone's here to help and that you don't have to have them here, you can turn them away at any time. Some people think of a chaplain or think of someone religious that, that comes to their home as a bit, a bit uh, outside their comfort zone and they don't like it. And so they'll immediately kind of have this defensive, I don't want a chaplain in my house kind of, kind of feeling. But if you let them know that they don't have to be here to sit and pray with you, they, they could be here. Like if they seemed a bit offended by it when you first tell them about it, you might be able to say that they don't have to sit and pray with you. They could just help you with everything that has to be done from here on out and help you understand what, what happens next. Like they're experts at that. So kind of in line with that, do they have... Uh, options or resources for folks of different cultures and religions where a chaplain isn't? I don't think so. I, they may. Yeah. They may. But more than anything, they have big lists of funeral home people. Of They do have lists of other, um, I think they have lists of other religious yeah. people, but they may not have them in the support officer group. But they may be able to call and contact people that are of certain religious stuff to get them there. So possibly. Pat, Pat Ellis was at a CE a couple months ago, mm -hmm. and he had mentioned like, even though his official title is chaplain, he's a non-religious um, position in a, in a fire department. So like, everything he does is non-religious. Like now if someone wants to pray, you know, he'll pray with them, but everything yeah. is non-religious. Is that why we classify them as support officers as opposed to chaplain. saying that this is the chaplain? Yeah. Right. They're not all chaplains either. No, no. 
Um, I think that general definition has been that they're all chaplains, that they have, and chaplain isn't necessarily a priest, right? Like it's, it's someone that is, that is helpful in their community, but also tends to be affiliated with some religion. But, um, but yeah, I think it, some people it's important to make sure they know that they're not, they don't have to be here for religious reasons. Yeah, if, if someone asks, or should we preface by saying like, you know, the, the support officers, these individuals, they adhere to the basic tenets of Christianity, but they perform secular roles, like they'll call funeral homes or help you call your family, or is that even too much? I think to that's too into? much, okay. yeah. I think they can explain those things themselves, that your explanation of them should be that they're here as a support officer, as a local person that is here to help you through this process. They, they work with the police department and the fire department to help people through uh, terrible situations and that, that might be enough. If someone, if someone wants to know are they religious, you say, well, they likely are religious, but they don't have to perform religious stuff with you. They don't have to pray with you if you're not comfortable with that. Like, okay. Yeah. Uh, I read a, a nice, short, easy read called Scenes of Compassion, a Responder's Guide for Dealing with Emergency Scenes. It's written by a paramedic um, whose own child died while the babysitter was home, drowned in the bathtub. Mm -hmm. And it re reflects on his experience and his wife's experience and using plain, simple language that doesn't add to confusion and pain. It's really well written, really easy to read, and it's a really quick read. Mm -hmm. Okay. Text, yeah, that'd be great. All of our officers read that last year. What's it called again? Uh, Scenes of Compassion will get it to you. And then the author's last name is Diet, D-I-E-T-Z. Mm -hmm. It's like 200 pages. Okay. But written by a paramedic, so he knows our perspective. Right, right. Yeah, that could be helpful for you guys. I mean, it is one of the harder parts of our job is, is, is making an announcement like that to someone. It's tough. So if you want, on my shift, I would typically be the one because I've done it enough times and I feel uh, awful about doing it but comfortable doing it. And so um, I was doing that. We were in one of our captain meetings uh, for EMS-1s and the other captain's like, what? No, you shouldn't be doing that. That's too much for you to be doing every time. Let Make the medics do it themselves every time because then it's more, more people doing it instead of you having to take that burden every time. Like, ah, I, don't, I can do it. I can manage it, you know, and, and I kind of like doing that part for my guys. So when, when the medic was off making the phone call to the doctor to cease efforts, then um, I would get the nod from them, and I would have already likely communicated with the family at some point during the code to prep them. So it could be that you guys don't always have to make this announcement to the family. It could be that you've already got someone that's communicating and giving the person a heads up. And it, of course, it's easier with someone who's 90 years old, you know, to make this announcement to someone. And usually the family is better uh, prepared to handle that kind of information. But I will usually, during the code, go communicate and tell the, the family member what's going on. Our guys, are, our guys are doing CPR right now. They've started an IV. They put a breathing tube in. They're breathing for your uh, spouse right now. And uh, right now, they have not had any response to the medications they've given. And uh, they were unable to have uh, the heart start back up yet. I'm going to go back. We've got some more time that we're going to keep working on your, on your spouse. But I will, I will come and update you again in a little while and kind of do a prep, you know. Um, it's hard to get that kind of news, I'm sure, uh, that, you know, someone you love has just died and they're gonna stay in your house dead 
after we leave, you know, like all that stuff has got to be shocking and, and all new to them. So I always felt like a, a kind of a pre-qualifying talk, letting them know what's going on, and then also being able to say that things aren't looking too good right now, that your, your, your husband's heart is not functioning right now on its own. We are doing, you know, compressions to try to circulate blood and, and the medications we're giving in hopes that we can get his heart started again or something. And that, that kind of kind of gives them a bit of a, a bit of knowledge and a bit of a heads up that things aren't going well. And then when I come back, you know, 15 minutes later or whatever, then I'm able to tell them that, that we've stopped CPR. We've done everything we could. Yeah. It seems like um, um, more recently now that we have the Tiger Chief responding as well, they yeah. have seen They've played that role mind. sometimes too, right. So we're splitting it up a little bit and I don't, I don't want you guys to have too many people talking to family, right? Like if for instance, EMS-1's already been communicating with the family and you've, and you've made the phone call and you've ceased efforts, then check in with that person who's already communicated, whether it's Battalion 1 or, or your, your officer in charge or whatever, check in, hey, um, we've been able to cease efforts. Can I, if you would like, I will go tell the person, you know, that their family is dead, but what have you told them already? Like, where are they at? You know, and just check in like that. Uh, you mentioned a name, Seffords. Who's, who or what is Seffords? Did I say that? C. Seffords? Oh, C. Seffords, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I thought you were talking about, like, calling a doctor named Seffords. Oh, no, I'm sorry to C. Seffords, yeah. Um, so that's a, another note right now is that when we stop CPR, we have to talk to a doctor. You can't just talk to the charge nurse. You have to ask for a doctor and you have to actually get confirmation from them before CPR is stopped that, that, that it's okay to stop. There's been a few cases I'm like, oh, we're definitely going to be stopping on this asystole code. We've been running it for 30 minutes. We've done everything we can. And I get on the phone and then I'm with a doctor I don't know, someone new. And they're like, hey, did you try bicarb yet? Oh, no, I didn't try bicarb yet. Okay. We usually don't do bicarb on someone like this, but we'll go try it, you know. So the doctor makes a suggestion, you have to go in and do CPR for a little longer, you know, and then actually make another phone call back and say, sorry, doc, there was no response. Or, yeah, the bicarb kick-started something, we now shocked him, and then I got a rhythm. And it's been 40 minutes now, and someone's gonna be brain dead, never leave the hospital at that point, but that's my thought process. But it's the doctor's job to tell us, no, it's okay to stop efforts or to keep going. So we have to have that official, you know, okay, question? Yeah, is that an EMS one phone call that's making that every time? Or no, that'll be a, you. Just a, like a presiding medic. That's yep. That phone call. So the medic running that call will be making that phone call because they'll know more details. Usually EMS one is managing hopefully some scene stuff. They're supposed to be making sure that uh, quality assurance is being done. So. Um, hopefully, we've been talking about our roles as EMS-1 as being someone that, that makes sure that we're trying to follow this new model of CPR where the BLS guys manage CPR. So your captain is the one timing, yelling out the 15 seconds, yelling out pulse check. Those things are being done. So we would hopefully be watching all the logistics of the call and then maybe being the communication with the family person. You know, but not necessarily directly involved with the call, unless there was no ability to, couldn't get IVs, couldn't intubate, something where you needed to get in and use some skills. Otherwise, you would be removed from the actual thing. So the medic who is running the call will know more about that number of epis you gave, the, the things that you did 
whether you got a pulse back and didn't get a pulse back, what your end tidal CO2 was, you'll have all those things noted when you make that call. So you'll be able to say, uh, here with an 80-year-old male patient who uh, was found by his wife this morning in bed, unresponsive without breathing. Um, she was unable to do CPR uh, by dispatch, but when we got there, we pulled him off the bed and we did CPR for um, a total of 40 minutes now. And in that 40 minutes, we were able to intubate, start an IV. We've given three rounds of epi. And uh, his heart rhythm was initially asystole. Then it went into a PEA rhythm for a while with no pulses. And tidal was 28 when we first intubated. And now it's down to 12 with CPR. We did Lucas CPR for part of that time. Like you'll, you'll be able to spew out a story and the doctor for that one will be like, okay, stop efforts, you know, stop talking. And they'll, you know, or there'll be, um, you know, someone like a 28 year old overdose and you'll be describing this story, uh, likely was down for four hours or last seen four hours ago, you know, and uh, has a history of heroin abuse or something. And we've given Narcan, we've given you know, all of our epi, and uh, unfortunately, they have not come back. And you might hear from the doctor 23, uh, have you guys tried this or have you tried that yet? And they may ask you to add on another couple epis, or they may say, would you just um, uh, give bicarb to this person? Something along those lines, maybe. So we'll talk about all those things logistically, but why bicarb? Bicarb is an alkalizing agent. If someone was hypoxic for a long time by lack of breathing, but they had a healthy heart, they may want them to give bi you to give bicarb so that you could try to reduce the overall acidosis that could have occurred from circulating blood without oxygen for a while causing this acidosis. So, so is that just the difference between our field protocols and their hospital standards, the suggestions that they give? No, you had said it's that, still oh, a, we wouldn't normally give that on this patient, yes. but the doctor's saying that we should. It's 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 almost always gonna still be something from our ACLS mm -hmm. standards. And uh, the ACLS standards have I don't know if they still do it this way, class A, class B, and class C. Class C being something that's that's likely not gonna help but could help kind of thing. So and that's where the like bicarb falls in. Yeah, it's just like you know, we can add this thing if we okay. want um, and try it. it works. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that something that, uh, like, that's an offline standing order, the bicarb that you would do proactively with that? Marv likes us to give it. So here's, here's your squishy protocols, right? Marv thinks, okay, yeah, if it's a drowning patient, they likely had a healthy heart, things are pumping along, they got hypoxic from maybe laryngeal spasm or maybe even some water in their lungs, and they're now struggling with acidosis because they're a drowning patient. Or it could be an aspirin overdose, or it could be someone with a TCA overdose, or um, possibly uh, like the scenario that we talked about where the person took heroin and now they probably didn't breathe for a long time. So they're gonna be acidotic just because their body's processing those cells are still trying to work as the heart circulates that more and more acidotic blood. They're not breathing because they have heroin, you know? So there's no exhaust of the CO2, so they're getting more and more acidotic. So that patient would be one that you, you could think right away on your own. I'm gonna start out early with bicarb on this person. I'm still gonna start with my epi first, but next I'm gonna talk to my partners about, hey, this could be an acidotic patient. Why don't we give bicarb to this person? And uh, some of your medics will have a history of giving bicarb. It used to be the routine. Every single code got it. Of getting someone back with bicarb and then chasing rhythms all over the place and still leaving them dead on scene. Or if they did get something back, they got them to the hospital and they never survived afterwards. Like they never left the three days after the hospital stay. They never went home. And that's what ACLS has shown too, is that bicarb could be helpful, but probably isn't. 
And so we think about it in certain situations where someone would, be, would have been hypoxic first, not a primary cardiac death, but probably a primary respiratory death, maybe even a hanging or something where someone has this asphyxia first, gets really acidotic. Maybe the alkalizing um, bicarb could help. Yeah. And I'm, for, at CE, you asked Dr. Emily this um, about the correlation between end tidal and acidosis. Yeah. My, what was her response? She, she was basically saying that the acidosis caused by an aspirin overdose um, would show in the form of the CO2 level in their blood. Like that acid, when they're blowing it off and they're, blow, they're breathing more quickly, is actually going to show a true amount, but I still don't understand that well. So if you're metabolically acidotic, like you have acid in your system, and you're trying to breathe extra like you uh, are someone with a ketoacidosis, someone who um, has uh, super high blood sugar, and you're now processing fats instead of your regular normal way of making sugar, you're processing fats to try to make sugar, you're gonna create acid by doing that, which means you're gonna breathe faster than normal. So ketoacidosis, that fruity breath, breathing faster than normal, then that end tidal reading that you get will probably be lower than normal. Why? Because you're breathing fast. You're breathing fast to try to get that CO2 off as fast as you can, which is allowing you to pick up more, hopefully, acids and then breathe them off. So if you're breathing 30 or 40 times a minute, you may have a, even still a lower than normal end tidal reading. So if you have an aspirin overdose, same thing. Like, what are you going to see on your end tidal? We just heard at CE, you have to match their respiratory drive. So if they're breathing at 40 times a minute, once you intubate, you darn well better breathe at 40 times a minute to match what they were doing because there's a reason the body's doing that and they're trying to breathe off extra acid for, for that. Let's say you've got someone, we're really getting off on tangents here, but if someone had a heroin overdose and they are sitting there with this bounding pulse of almost every time, you go to someone who's had heroin who's still alive um, but not breathing, they, uh, they will have this horrendous like bounding pulse. Their heart is working, man. And, um, and, and when you first intubate them, you maybe are, have someone there ventilating and trying to breathe for them with an oral airway in or something. You've given Narcan. If by chance you get to the point where you've decided you have to intubate them, which normally you wouldn't, you'd let the Narcan do its job, um, and you see your first reading on your end title, it could be like 90. Like they have trapped so much uh, CO2 in their system that as their body circulates that blood through the capillary bed of the lungs, it is giving off all this CO2 and it could be these huge numbers. Yeah, I remember, I remember seeing 110 one time, 110 for an end tidal on a CHFR that I was able to intubate. And after we peered, uh, got the, the pink frothy sputum looked like a strawberry milkshake out of the tube and were suctioned it enough and got the end tidal thing cleaned up and put on, it still said 110 for the end tidal. They had been trapping CO2 for so long by hypoventilating and all the alveoli and stuff weren't processing, they were all full of water, so they weren't processing the, the air exchange well, um, that when we gave good breaths and good ventilations and could see the end tidal, it was 110. I'm like, holy crap, you know. Yeah. So if someone's end tidal is somewhere above 60, there's something called CO2 narcosis. So you can have someone that's acting decreased. Their level of consciousness won't be right. And it isn't necessarily, it is necessarily, not necessarily just the lack of oxygen. Like they may have a SAT of 80, 
and yet they're also decreased. Like, why are they so decreased? Or maybe their SAT is even 85. But their end title is so high, it's 60, it's 80, that they are actually feeling like almost a narcotic type sense of depression, like mental depression from the high acid level or the high CO2 in their system. It's called CO2 narcosis. So um, you could get someone and breathe off all the CO2, get their SAT up, and they can return to a relatively normal uh, level of consciousness because you ventilated them and oxygenated them. So all that's cool stuff. Let me get back to my slideshow so I know where I'm. <laughs> we have till 11. So we had a little extra time built into this for me to talk to you guys in addition to Kendra talking to you. I want to um, I want to make sure that that um, that I talk about um, the Kendra process a little bit more. Um, support officers, my wife used to be a part of the support officers. Um, she was the manager of them before Kendra uh, ended up taking over. We had a support officer guy that was, uh, was Glenn. Glenn was his name, and I don't think he's local anymore. He was a Linden guy and uh, had a history of being a Vietnam vet, and, uh, and he was a local chaplain, started out as a regular support officer with a support officer program that already existed, but really was able to kind of grow it in its size. He was associated with Christ the King Church and um, had a bunch of other people that were helping volunteer and were in his group. And at the time, they had nice jackets that said support officer. My wife was managing their schedule. They had a, a set schedule, a call schedule, when they would be on duty, on call, you know, because they had enough people. It was a big program for a while. And they had good support from some community members uh, that were donating money to the program. And uh, so Glenn was uh, one of these characters that just had lost his daughter in a car accident. Jay Comfort was on the call. Uh, one, of his, one of his daughters was driving, the other one was killed in the, on the river road right there by Linden. And uh, that's one of the reasons that he ended up going into this program. So he always had this really personal story that went with support officers and the fact that I think someone from our current or then support officer group had been there and was able to talk to him. And it kind of sparked his interest and he was a really good advocate for a while. And then, um, and then some years went by, he was managing it, but um, I don't know why. I think maybe he lost interest or something. He ended up moving away. But Kendra had taken over while he was there as the managing person and, uh, and has now been doing it for many years and is doing a good job of managing, I think, a, a maybe a more limited staff of support officers. So I think everyone just carries a pager now. And if they're close, if they're available, they will answer. It's not scheduled out anymore like it was in the past. And I don't think they have quite as much money as they did back in those days. I think one of the, one of the people that was contributing, uh, I think it was 4,000 a month, one of our local writers, uh, an author or something was putting like 4,000 a month into the program. I think we lost that contributor. Um, so, uh, Glenn had some real stories about Vietnam and being an angry young man whose mom died while he was over there and he wasn't allowed to go home to see his mom and uh, she died in a car accident also and so um, yeah he was quite a storyteller that guy um, so that's kind of the history of our program is that 
that we have a really stable person in Kendra right now who is Chad Cristelli's wife. You guys know Chad? He's a police officer for Bellingham. So um, she's been like this super stable kind of face of the support officer program for a long time. And she does some fundraisers for fitness stuff for the fire department and does, I think there's another fundraiser that's kind of between police and fire. Like, I can't remember what they all are, but she tries to, yeah, yeah. It's, but I think there's something more than just, I think there's two fundraisers that they do. Yes. Yeah. That might be a fundraiser, right? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, it's a great resource for us. I tell you what, when, you, when you're able to step away from a crummy situation where uh, you know you need to get back in service and you can have someone from support officers show up, offer them the information they need, try to introduce them to someone and be respectful of what they're going to do, be respectful of them. They're usually pretty low-key when they walk in, not, don't have high expectations about the information you're going to give them. A lot of them, when I've talked to them, just almost feel... I feel like they're ready to just walk past and go right to the family member without knowing anything. So um, when I kind of am able to stop them and give them some, some background information, I always feel like that's better than maybe some other people have been giving them. But please do that. Please offer them some information as they go in so that they're a little bit more prepared because otherwise they're starting at ground zero with not, maybe not even knowing the situation, whether it be a suicide, whether it be you know natural death, that kind of thing. All right, so try to keep that, uh, you know, if people talk about support officers in the community or something, try to, try to hold them in high regard in your remarks about what they do for us and everything because I don't think they get paid anything. It's just good people helping out their community. Do you know, so I find a partner is interested in getting involved on a volunteer level. Mm-hmm. I don't, but I do think Kendra is your contact point. I have her phone number if you want, or she'd be available on the website. She comes up when you put in support officer, so yeah, support officer Whatcom County, I think, or you just do a Google search, you'll find her. Her face is there. I did it a little while ago when I tried to get her to come to this today, but, um, so she's definitely available. Okay. Um, just kind of the natural flow here. This is trying to talk about our, our stress response and, and what we go through when we're dealing with stress. Um, I think the longer you do this job, probably the better you'll be able to deal with stress, but at the same time, I think stress ends up kind of cumulative. Like we do have things that can build up and maybe express themselves on certain calls where you've had a similar call in the past and this is the one that that kind of triggers you or something or makes you think about previous stuff. So be aware, your stress may build up over time. And I know there's one of our firefighters that, that was dealing with stress and, and he remembers talking about, well, he talked to me about, he said that, that his stress was ongoing at a level that he didn't really recognize. And then there was a call that was like a know-nothing call that seemed to just really affect him in a negative way. And he couldn't even really understand why a particular call was the one that made him feel like he did. But he ended up, you know, getting some employee assistance help, getting some help from um, counselors and is doing great. But 
Um, the part I guess that I wanted to say about that was that it doesn't have to be you know, a five-car pileup on I-5 with three dead people that triggers you. It could be something that has been smoldering along, and it could be a call that you don't even think is that stressful that ends up making you, um, you know, however your stress expresses itself, sleeplessness, drinking, you know, whatever it is, anger at the family, you know, snapping at people, whatever your things are that, that are being expressed by stress, it doesn't necessarily have to be some big event. It could be just a lot of stuff. And that's, I guess that's one of those reasons I say, if you can avoid working every goddamn day of the month for 30 days straight or something, I know you can't do that legally on our department, but there are people that work like instead of eight days a month or nine days a month, they are working 15 days a month or something. And it's, I just think it can build up and not necessarily be healthy for you. So think about that when you do your big planning. I understand the payoff could be two months off, and that like, eh, two months, pretty good time to de-stress, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe that works, but just be very careful about, about yourself that way. <clears throat> Warning signs. So hopefully you guys know yourselves pretty well, but nausea, vomiting, upset stomach, um, tremors in the lips, hands, feeling uncoordinated. Um, Sweaty, flush, chills. I don't know, you guys, you guys will probably be on calls. I remember, um, yeah, Matt wouldn't mind me talking about this, but Matt Fleming, he, he is one of those guys that, like, if, if when he was first starting IVs and he was first learning how to start them, like, his hand would be kind of shaky, you know, and like all over the place. It looked like, oh, geez, Matt, are you okay? Like, <laughs> but he is awesome, and he's good at starting IVs, but just kind of looking a little bit shaky on calls. I remember um, Skip Moore, like just this rock star of a guy who was a medic forever and just had this, this he was like six foot six or something, and just this huge man who had this presence all the time. Like he... He was um, someone who would sweat when he got stressed. And so you wouldn't be able to see it otherwise, but if you knew him, you'd know on a stressful call, this guy is dripping sweat, you know, and that that was his kind of thing that would happen. So you guys will, will recognize over time when you're super focused on something, whether it's an intubation or it's an IV or, or uh, something I think usually technical, like a physical skill is where it seems to express itself for some reason. You might, you might recognize some of the things that, that your body does under stress, you know. But if you can think of those things during the event, during the call, and then if you recognize those happening to you when you're not at the call, like when you're outside of the call and no longer there, then maybe that's a way for you to look at these, these physical things and know, hey, I've been under some damn stress lately. Maybe I need to Maybe I need to seek some help and, and talk to uh, peer support or talk to uh, the employee assistance program about things. Um, aching muscles and joints, uh, sleep disturbances, fatigue, dry mouth, uh, shake, headache, vision problems, difficulty, difficult or rapid breathing, chest tightness. So that, <laughs> yeah, if you've got chest pain because of the stress <laughs> of this class, that may not be unusual, but uh, be aware, it is a sign of stress, right? Um, uh, and then I do feel like sometimes you could be un under enough stress that this first thing in the cognitive here, this confusion, it can be uh, a byproduct of too much stress. So if you're, I, I think 
maybe especially new at doing patient exams, doing patient interviews, asking questions, and you find yourself asking the same question four times because you, you didn't listen to the answer the first three times you asked it, and now, uh, what was the number of your chest pain again? I said nine three times, and some people start getting pissed at you, you know, like, oh, I'm such an idiot, and, and it's, it's stress, right? The confusion is probably coming from the stress that you're under. So. Um, when, when Joe comes and talks about methods of, of doing things in a distinct way, that will help you hopefully um, come up with a, a system yourself so that when you get an answer, you either write it down or you can remember it better because you always did it in a certain order. So that may help with the confusion potential like when you're under stress. How many of you guys have had that happen where you're even as an EMT, you're asking questions. I swear to God, I asked that already. Oh, yeah. not, not even that. I swear to God, I asked that already. Yes. Question, and you're like, oh, it's always the name. Oh, the name. Yeah. Oh, right, right. That is a that is a good one. I frequently forget the name too. So, yeah, come up with systems so that you can correct your your deficiencies as you recognize them like that. Because, yeah, I. Uh, I know you're trying to think of OPQRST, you know, and then you're you're thinking, well, I don't even remember the O that I that I like. Ah, I know I asked that already. Like, yeah. And the worst thing, honestly, the worst thing is when the patient calls you out on it. That makes it even worse. Like, uh, I already told you that three times, and then like the and then they'll be upset that the EMTs asked them the question, and now you're asking the same one. And then the hospital will ask them the same question. They just some people are really intolerant of that stuff. Um, difficulty making decisions. You guys, um, I do believe that this is, a, this is a byproduct of stress too. Your inability to make decisions on scene will definitely be affected by your stress level and by inexperience. So uh, it'll, it'll come with time. Um, let's see. This emotional stuff that it goes through, I think that these are this anger, numb feeling. Uh, identifying with victims, I think it's going to be impossible for you guys not to identify with certain people that you see, um, whether it's someone that, that is the same age as your, as your brother, your spouse, your, someone who's the same age as one of your own children, something like that will, will probably hit you differently than it might hit someone else that's right next to you on the job. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that all of this just comes down to hopefully recognizing your symptoms and then asking for help when you when you need it uh, don't be too proud to ask for help i do feel like uh, is something that our guys tend to do tend not to ask for help when they should and it could shorten your career uh, we haven't had one like this ever thank god i do remember a ambulance burning with tony mcguinn and i driving on the mount baker highway and a damn ambulance caught fire Fire was coming out of our right tire well up over the front of the rig and Tony pulled over and we had to get the extinguisher out and put it out and then stand by and wait for, uh, we had to send another medic in to where we were going. Yeah, that was a crazy one. Who did? Tony Escher. One of our lieutenants and a guy left us to go to Everett and they got hit on the back side of the ambulance. Okay. Really? Oh my God. He hit him hard. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, that's the end of the thing. All right. So we have the lawyer talking today, and so our our um, our protections as EMTs. Let's try to think of that when we're here uh, communicating about that today. Um, accident packets are on the rig too, as we think about accidents. Um, there, it's in a it's in a um, kind of a beige colored regular paper folder. It's not in the same red uh, folder that the infectious disease stuff is, but um, it just has directions in it just like any other. Uh, I was driving the EMS one rig a little while ago and was at the intersection of Sunset and Cornwall and looking to my, to my left where this car was coming, it looked like she was stopping so I pulled out a little bit and then she didn't stop all the way. She kind of had almost stopped, but then hit my, my front tire of my rig with her car. Kind of pushed her front bumper in a little bit, but didn't have any damage to my vehicle. And so I had to get out and do this whole bullshit, you know. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I saw you there. And then I guess I thought I was stopping, but I didn't. And like, <laughs> oh, no. Um, so, yeah, be careful when you're driving to make sure um, you guys probably won't be driving a lot actually for a little while, but um, do make sure that you feel good about proceeding if you're if you're driving um, and that you don't get in accidents because that is a, a career shortener too. Like I remember um, when you ask other people to drive, district folks or our own fire folks, um, they may not drive as well as you may want them to. They may feel like, you may feel like they don't realize you're in the back when they're driving because they're going so fast or braking so hard or whatever. But um, there's been some talk that we should all be in seatbelts in the back of our rig. And I personally resisted it because I've spent my whole career not wearing a seatbelt. But technically, if you are at a point in the call where you can get into the captain's seat or the seat, if you're working the patient, I'd like you to have some eye contact. So you'd be on the bench seat looking at them. Put a belt on if you can. It's the wise thing to do. There is a little bar now uh, to the right of our seat that will protect you a little bit. If someone slams on the brakes or gets in an accident, you would slam up against that bar before you proceeded into that area with all the kits and stuff. But, um, but I would say that your, your safest thing is to have a seat belt on. When you're starting IVs, you're giving medications, you're, you're up to get the phone to get your phone call into the hospital, all those things are probably not going to allow you to be in a seatbelt. But if you can at some point, like you've done all the stuff, you're now writing your report, put a seatbelt on. Yeah, you're going to be safer for having done it. I mean, a lot of these accidents that happen, there's very little like someone slamming into the back of a rig like that without good grief, like flipping you on your side. I, I uh, luckily have never had that happen. I, uh, you would never even think that, right? You'd just be back there caring for a patient. You're stopped at a stop sign, so you're not even going code red. You're thinking, I'm safe to be in the back without a seatbelt, but then someone hits you like that. You're going to wish you had it on. Mm -hmm. Any experiences with accidents yourselves in the rigs? I was at the high school one time, Bellingham High, and someone had been running around up on the roof, one of the janitorial staff or something, and 911 was called, and he said he was combative or something was the information that we got before we went to it. So I drive into the parking lot at uh, Bellingham, and this there's a spot next to Bellingham High where you can kind of turn, and there's a brick area that goes up towards the tennis court area, kind of next to the school. And, uh, 
And this, so I'm pulling over there because we're getting directions on that. So that's where the person is. And uh, so I've, I've pulled up over there. I'm still traveling, you know, maybe five miles an hour or so as I, as I go through this area. And here comes this car and it is coming right at us. I'm like, slam on my brake, come to a complete stop. And this car swerves a little bit and then runs right into the front of my rig on the driver's side a little bit, bends in my bumper and just runs right into the rig. And that was our patient. <laughs> so then we're like getting out like and and trying to figure out like are we safe is the car still going to possibly back up and and try to run us over and he didn't luckily we got in there turned off the car and then and then we're able to start talking to him and he was he was high on something i don't know for sure what it was but we ended up taking him into the hospital but then here you got this damn report you got to write on someone hitting your vehicle and stuff so i've been in those two. I've had a deer hit the side of my rig on I-5. Shit down the whole side of it. We, we, we must have messed up the deer pretty good, but it was right there, just about to go under Alabama, going north towards the hospital, patient in the back with us, and this deer um, comes off the, the concrete, over the concrete thing, and just slammed right into the side of our rig. And I don't know who's driving, but they're like, Dear, <laughs> and then we heard, we heard a clunk noise, and then we get to the hospital, look at the side of our rig, and there's there's no damage to the rig, thank God, but maybe a little bit dent in one of the diamond plate areas up towards the front or something, uh, where the door is, and then the box begins. There might have been a little damage there, but the rest of the rig is just shit all over the side of it. Like, oh man, <laughs> so we had to clean that all up. But yeah, I, I don't think the deer made it. So, so we called state patrol or we called dispatch and asked them to get state patrol there to, to manage that. So. I had a good lesson this year. I was like a positive audio. Oh yeah, yeah. I was in 